Good morning, church. We will continue uh, in Genesis, uh, where we left off last week there in the beginning of uh, chapter 35. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 35, and uh, we're going to read there together. So we'll read Genesis 35. We're going to begin in verse 1, and then read down through verse 15. This is God's word. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the timber tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people that were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak tree below Bethel, So he called its name Eloin Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again. And when he came from Pada Aram, he blessed him. And and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This concludes our reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. For without it, we would be nothing. We would have nothing. We would know nothing of you. Your graciousness and your saving power. So, Father, we ask now that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes. We have confidence in it that it does not return void. That although the flower fades and the grass withers, your word, O Lord, will endure forever. So, Father, we ask that you would use your word to accomplish salvation. That today would be the day of salvation for some. In hearing, they would believe and they would respond in faith. Father, we pray for the saints as well. That this morning as we hear your word, that 
it would call us where we have parted from it to the right or to the left. Father, that it would give us clarity and even sanity in what so often seems like an insane world, which is exactly what sin and rebellion against you is. So Father, bring us back to you and back to true sanity. Sanctify us. Form us more and more into the image of Christ through hearing your word this morning. Build us up for your glory as a testimony to those around us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I don't know if you're married, if you've ever been in a situation like I found myself in many times. Driving home from dinner with someone, being over at someone's house, getting in the car and just being quiet. Because you're wondering, how much trouble am I in right now? (laughs) Have you ever been there? You said something and you got the look. That's all we have to say is the look. Men, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you are absolutely not paying attention to your wife, right? (laughs) Because there's no way you're a man and you don't know what I'm talking about. And you've gotten the look and you just wonder to what degree of trouble you are in because of that look. So you ride in the car and you sit in silence and you wait for her to speak first, right? And see what she says. And if she starts the conversation and it goes on, then you realize, oh, wow, I must not have been in any trouble. I misinterpreted the look. Uh, or from there you go to find out how much you need to apologize for what you've done wrong. We've all probably experienced those types of things, even if you're not married, in interpersonal in relationships with others where you've offended someone and things seem to kind of go cold. But friends, that doesn't even begin to get to the degree of what we're seeing here in the text before us this morning. I can remember several, several years ago getting a call from a friend saying, I have absolutely messed up in confessing sin. I told my wife, and we're not talking to one another. And I watched, sought to offer counsel but sat in the tension of, will this marriage survive? Prayed and just waited. And I can remember getting a text a few days later, and it was very simple. We talked last night, and the grace of God came to bear. And I just wept because that's all that needed to be said. God's grace came to bear. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly the kind of tension we find ourselves here in this passage. I mean, go back to to chapter 34, the end of the chapter. If you remember this very difficult passage that Pastor Ken preached an excellent sermon on last week, it's dark, it's bleak, There's not much redeemable going on here. There's a lot to learn of what not to do here in this passage. And the passage ends there in 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. And he asks, he says, "I'm, I'm going to be destroyed. 
both I and the household. And then look, they respond, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And during chapter 34, God has not spoken. Sin has abounded. Sin has begot more sin. And these are God's covenant people. What is going to happen? Have they blown it? Is it over? Is it all going to end right here? Friend, maybe you've not felt that way in a marriage or a relationship, but maybe you've felt that way in other ways in your life. Have I absolutely gone beyond the point of redemption? And probably the most beautiful thing happens without a doubt, not probably, but it does, in 35.1. We see it right there. God said. I mean, this is Ephesians 2 right here in Genesis 35. But God. God speaks. God breaks the silence and the tension. I think we could just preach a whole sermon right there on 35.1. That brothers and sisters, that we should not forget of the miracle that as Schaefer said a long time ago, he is there and he is not silent. That God is a speaking God. Matthew Barrett says it this way, as Christians, we take God's revelation of himself for granted. But if we think about who God is, it is nothing short of remarkable that he has spoken. So catch what he's saying. He says, we take it for granted that God reveals himself. We take it for granted that we have a Bible. We take it for granted that God is a speaking God and he's made himself known. And he says the reason why we take it for granted is because we're not thinking well about who God is. He says it's nothing short of remarkable that he's spoken. This is true for a number of reasons. To begin with, he is infinite, eternal, and, in, and the incomprehensible creator. Brothers and sisters, think about the reality of who God is, that he stands outside of creation, that he has created all things, that he is transcendent, that he is so far above everything. As Barrett says here, he's infinite. He's eternal, no beginning, no end, and he's incomprehensible. And then he contrasts it with this. Back to the quote, we, on the other hand, are finite creatures. I mean, we're the opposite of that. We are finite. We are certainly not eternal. And we are not incomprehensible, but we are comprehensive. We are very well understood by the Creator. Then notice what he says next. How incredible it is then that this incomprehensible creator would stoop down to make himself known to us brittle creatures so that in turn we might know him truly, even if never comprehensively. Do you get that? That <laughs> We would know him, we would never know him comprehensively because he's infinite. And then he quotes Calvin, as Calvin said, with such eloquence, God is like the nurse who lists to the newborn baby. Just as we get down in the baby's face and we do the goo-goo gaga, right? And we talk the baby talk, to commune with that baby, to talk with that baby. So God has 
condescended and stooped down to make himself known to us. Brothers and sisters, it's an absolute miracle that God would do such a thing. And then that he would do it again and again and again, as he does right here. Look at what it says. God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So here we have just my PowerPoint's meager this morning, and it's just for those of you who like to take notes. I think they can, oh, they actually put, see, I don't even do transitions in PowerPoints. So Scott, you, I'm sure you did that. Thank you, brother. Everybody here appreciates it. So in verse one, because if it was me, it would just be one plain slide, and it would all be up there right now. I'll just show you everything before I got to it, and you'd probably try to fill it in and check out. So thank you, Scott, for keeping everybody engaged. Um, but, but here's what we see. God speaks. That's in verse one, all right? In verses 2 through 8, what we see is Jacob's going to respond. All right, Jacob's going to respond to the Lord. So look there at verse 2. God gives these instructions, and Jacob responds to the instructions. And actually what we see going on to this response, let me just say this, is there's a strong contrast in what happened in, in chapter 34, right? You remember chapter 34? If from Jacob, what do we have? We have passivity and inactivity. He's not really doing anything. He's completely inactive. But here he's going to respond and he's actually going to lead like he's supposed to, right? He's going to take the reins and he's going to lead. And so look at what happens there in verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and all to who, were, who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. So here's the first thing that I want us just to note right away. And dads specifically, it's never too late to start leading. We'll just hear that one more time. That it's never too late to start to lead in a way that would honor the Lord. I know how this works. I know because I'm like you. Let's just think about sin in general, right? I know how we operate. That we start to indulge in a bit of juicy gossip and we know that we shouldn't go there, right? But we've already began. And so we just say, oh, I've already kind of crossed the line, so I'll just go ahead and just indulge completely and finish the conversation. You been there? You start to lose your patience. And you know that you shouldn't do it. And you're like, ah, but I've already crossed the line. So I'll just go ahead and just completely indulge the flesh here and just let everybody know how they should be bowing around my wheel right now in the home. Right? We know how this works. It's kind of the, the, the analogy is it's like, well, I've already stuck my toe in the pool, so I might as well just jump completely in the pool. That analogy helps us see the insanity of it, does it not? You've got a young kid and they've got their clothes on and you don't want them to get wet and they're walking to, do not get close to the pool, do not get close to the pool, do not get close to the pool. They stick their toe in the pool. You better stop now or you're going to be in trouble. Would you rather them just stop or just go ahead and just jump in? So now maybe you've got a damp shoe, but now you've got to change clothes and ride them home and wet. You know what I'm saying? But this is how we work. And so it is with this. And when it comes to leading, fathers specifically in the home, we're tempted to buy into the lie that I've done a poor job of this so far, so who am I to start doing the right thing now? Would you please just listen to the insanity of that statement for a moment? 
That it is never too late to begin to lead? That it is never too late for God's grace to come to bear in your life and for you to begin to lead the family to do the right thing and for you to say, this is what would honor the Lord. He's told us in his word very clearly right here and so this is what we're going to do as a family. And we're doing it because I love the Lord and I love you. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. There's mini sermon number one. All right. Look at what happens. So Jacob calls them to put away the idols. Two things come to mind here. First, the looting that just happened in Shechem. More than likely, they took idols with them in that when they looted and plundered. And then we even think of Rachel herself bringing the idols from Laban. And so we have two things in mind here. And, and what Jacob calls them to is he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. I mean, it reminds us of the first two commandments that are to come, right? You should have no other gods before the Lord and that you should not make for yourself graven images. And Jacob here is saying that, that God has called us to himself and there, are, there is no room for rival deities. He is a jealous God. He will not share his place in our lives with any other. It is he and he alone who will rule and who will reign. And Jacob is calling them that, that God has called himself to us. He's, he's called us to return. He's not done with us. He's not given up on us. And, and he's called us to himself. And the right thing to do in this moment is to put away the foreign gods and to purify ourselves and to change our garments. And this is just a picture of an external sign of what should be an internal reality, that they are going to now have integrity of heart, if you will, Right? And integrity just means integrated, that they'll be truly not divided in their hearts, but their hearts will be integrated and they will be focused solely on the Lord as their God. And so Jacob calls them to purify themselves and to change their garments, and this will be an external sign of an inward reality. Next week, Jonathan will preach on Mark 7, and he'll go into detail on this, right? of how it's the internal that matters. And so we see here, Verse three, then let us arise and go up to Bethel that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Can we just note right there for a moment the contrast between God and idols? The Bible is so clear. Call to an idol and they will not answer. They will not answer you. They will not answer you in your day of distress, in your day of trouble. We're tempted today to think that we don't have idols anymore. We're tempted today to think that, well, that's not really an issue for us. I, I don't really have any statues in my house that I'm bowing down to. Brothers and sisters, idolatry is still very real today. That we put our trust in other things besides the Lord. I love the way Tim Keller just sums it up, that an idol is anything that you love, trust, and obey. It's anything that you love and you trust and you obey. That you love this thing, whatever it is, because it's going to make you happy. It's going to produce for you this happiness. And you trust it because it will always deliver that happiness. And therefore, you obey and make sacrifice for it. 
Let me just give you an easy one. You love a career because it will give you status and approval in the eyes of others. Right? You trust that career because it's delivering that to you, and because of that trust, you will make sacrifice for it. You'll sacrifice maybe your integrity to climb higher on the ladder and to gain more status and approval for others. You may sacrifice your family by neglecting them so that you can have more time in that career and move up in it. And on and on we can go. You can just fill in the blank with any number of things. A good way to find out idols of our age, and let me just say this right away, it doesn't mean that careers are always idols and they're always bad. That's not what that means at all. The Bible's very clear. If you don't work, you don't eat. Work's important, right? Because I think we kind of need to eat to live. So, so it's important, but it's when we take this good thing and we elevate it to a God thing. We make it an ultimate thing. And that we're trying to find our identity in it. We're trying to find our status in it. We're, gonna, we're loving it above other things and trusting it. And we may have a variety of idols in our lives. Health could be an idol. Family could be an idol. Money can be an idol. I love money because it gives me security. The other main thing that, that people trust money for is it gives me things, two things, security, things, Right? I love it because it can do that. I trust it, so therefore I will obey it. I can't give it away because I'm trusting it to give me security. I've got to have a lot saved up because something bigger could happen, and although I've got X in the bank, I might need a little bit more. So I can't give any away and be generous with it. Or if I'm trusting it to give me things, I'm spending it all, and I don't have any to give away anyway because I need the next new thing to be happy. You see how this works. Brothers and sisters, I think it would be just a, a good moment to take and just to survey because we could read over this really quickly and think, well, I don't really struggle with idolatry, but we do. We do. Calvin, quoting off of Tertullian, the church father, the heart is an idol factory, perpetual. We dethrone one, and before we know it, another one has arisen to take its place. What are the rival gods in your life? And, and the point that the Bible is making here is that, that they, have, they are no rival to God. That what's going on here is that we're seeing that they don't compare to the one true God. Theologian Christopher Wright said this, the one thing that idols never fail to do is fail. They'll always fail you. The Bible is full, especially the Old Testament, of what theologians have called polemical theology. And a polemic is just a strong refutation to refute something. And it's full of polemical theology against especially idols and other gods. One great example I think I was watching from home this week uh, during, during the sermon that Pastor Ken preached when Rachel was sitting on the foreign gods and hiding them, right? Remember that? Laban was looking for them. And I was saying amen out loud from the living room. Pastor Ken couldn't hear me, but I texted him too. After his sermon, I didn't want to distract him during the sermon. But, but I was like, yes, yes, it's so good, it's so good, right? God will not be sat on. He will not be silenced. 
He will not, as they will do with these gods, be buried. But your idols, they will all fail you. If it's career, what happens when you grow old and you retire and you're forgotten two generations later, maybe 10 years later, maybe five years later? If it's your health, what happens when it fails you? Because it will. If it's your money, what happens when something hap- when the stock market crashes and all those investments go? Or what happens when you die? You're not going to take it with you. And your kids will just squander it, by the way. Right? They'll just fail you over and over and over again. But there's one who will not fail you, and it's the one true God of the Bible. And this is what he's showing us right here. As he's spoken with them, Brothers and sisters, what we're seeing in this passage is that that we're seeing God's grace among his people, that he's saying, I'm not done with you. I'm not letting you go. I'm not quitting you, so to speak, right? I will finish what I started in you and with you. And so we see in verse 3 that they got up. And Jacob says, this is the God who answers us. And then look at them. They follow his leadership, verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. This is probably like an amulet or something of that nature that was showing um, loyalty to some sort of idol or deity uh, that they uh, thought of. And Jacob hid them under the timber tree that was near Shechem. This word hid them is unique. We don't need to think of it like you hide treasure, you're going to come back to it. It is more of a burial. They're burying it, but it's not the formal word for burial because I believe Moses is saying they didn't give it like a proper burial like they're going to give to uh, Rachel, to Deborah, to Isaac, others later in the chapter. This is a burial of putting them away completely and leaving them behind. And so they buried them there. And then look at verse 5. It's just God's grace. You remember Jacob's concern there at the end of 34? And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell on the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. When Jacob came to Bethel, he and all the people who were with him, there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because God had revealed himself to him when he fled there, when he fled from his brother. Really, we'll see here reminders from uh, Genesis 28 and Genesis uh, 33 later on, or 32, with Jacob's interactions with God, where uh, he met God in the latter, and then also there where he wrestled with God later. And so we have this note, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, there in 30 and verse 8, sorry, that it says that and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. She was buried under the oak tree below Bethel. So he called his name Alon Bakuth. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. So what do we see? We see first that, that Jacob's responding and that he calls him to put away the idols and he calls him to put on garments that is a, response, that is a sign of what's going on. And then in verse 9, we're going to see that God has spoken to Jacob in verse 1, that Jacob is responding, and then verse 9, God continues to speak, and what he does is he reminds Jacob. He reminds him. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob 
when he came from Paddan Aram. And he blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am the God Almighty. Notice that once again. I am the God Almighty. I am the one and only God. Be fruitful and multiply. Notice this, these are reminders of, of what's been said and what's been promised. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. This reminds us of what Abraham himself heard back in Genesis 17. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And notice this. It's almost as if, no, Jacob, you haven't blown it. I'm continuing to be at work in you, and neither has your offspring. Look, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he's spoken to him. And what does Jacob do in response? What we always should do when we encounter God, he worships. Look there in the next two verses, 14 and 15. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place. He's spoken with a pillar of stone and he poured out a drink offering on it. And he poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Do you remember what Jacob said in the beginning of all this? God, if you would just give me food to eat and clothes to wear and, and bring me back this place, I'll trust you. Here's a reminder that, that God has done that and so much more. Remember how much God has prospered him. Remember the great wealth that he has at this point. And how God has exceedingly and abundantly blessed him and made good on his promises, and brought him back to where he started. I think it would help us if we just quickly pause and ask, well, what does this look like for us? As, as New Covenant believers, as Christians, this side of the cross and resurrection, what does this look like for us? Do, do we have a pattern like this that we see going on with Jacob in 35 in our own lives? The answer is yes. That God still speaks to us in his word. And that he initiates this conversation with us. He initiates this with us actually every week. Hebrews 10.24, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. But when you're together, all the more stirring one another up, right? To love and good works as you see that day drawing near. So, so God has initiated this and, and he's called us to meet together, to worship. The preaching of the word would be proclaimed every time we gather. that we gather to hear God's word preached, to sing and to worship and to pray and to hear his word proclaimed. See, all week long, here's what we hear. We hear preaching. You're like, oh, really? How do you, how do you know? I didn't podcast anybody this past week. No, no, no. The world is preaching to us all week long. They're preaching the false gospels. It's everywhere. It's the very air that we breathe when we walk outside. It's in the ads that we see, commercial, billboard, magazine, 
pop-ups on the digital screen, right? It's there. It's luring us in. It's calling us to believe in it. It's in our workplace. It's in the movies that we watch. It's in the sitcoms that we watch. It is, it is, we are inundated with it continually. As we drive down the road and we look at cars and we see homes and constantly we are lured in saying, this is the good life. This is what you need right here. If you have this, you fill in the blank, whatever it is, you will be happy. You will be fulfilled. You will be satisfied. Luring us to new idols continually. Friends, we can't avoid it. And we need to hear God's word continually to be called out of that. To be freed of that. To return to sanity. It's like coming out of the water and getting a breath of air after holding your breath to the point that you thought you were going to pass out. It's refreshing, it's invigorating, and it's life-giving. Listen to how just coming out of the Reformation, the Reformers viewed the preaching of God's word. This is the second Helvetic Confession, one of the earliest confessions coming out of the Reformation. We believe that today, when this word of God is proclaimed in the church by preachers who have been legitimately called, then the very word of God itself is proclaimed and received by the faithful. They had such a high view of preaching that we need to hear it Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege to read it. We have the privilege uh, to, to have it in our homes, to have it on our devices, to scroll through it, to read it. But there is something about hearing it proclaimed to us that does something to us, that God is at work in that. And we need that. We need to be confronted with God's word. And that's what preaching is. It's a confrontation that says, don't believe the lies that tickle your ears, that come with a hiss and say, has God really said this? And do you really need that? Look this way. And we part from the right or the left. We need to be called back to it. Brothers and sisters, we've been called to it. I just turn over to Ephesians 4, if you will. Let's just show you real quickly how I think the same pattern that we see here in Exodus, I mean, sorry, Genesis 35 works out. Uh, I think I said four, but let's go to two first. And we could go to one, but we'll, we'll go to two, right? We don't have but only so much time because I know something else is going to start calling you in a few minutes. It's going to be your belly. And um, so those hunger pains, you won't be able to hear. So let's just do two. So first thing we get is we get this reminder, right? That's what God did with Jacob. Your name is Jacob. You'll be called Jacob no longer. You're going to be called Israel. There's this changing of identity. It's reminding him of who he was and who he now is as God's man, as someone who was in covenant with God. And look at, look at chap, verse, chapter 2, verse 1. 
This is the way Paul operates all throughout his epistles. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And once you which walked, and once you walked, sorry, in which you once walked, could not get that one out, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It was a bleak situation, hopeless and helpless, dead in our trespasses and sin. Enemies of God. Here's what we referred to earlier there in Genesis 35, but God. I've heard one theologian say it's the greatest conjunction in all the Bible. But God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that at the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Hold on a second right there. I want to preach this whole passage, but that's not what I've been asked to do. And so, so look, at, look at verse 7 for just a moment, just a moment. I'll take the liberty since I have the stage. But in verse 7, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> if my wife was here, I'd have, heard, I'd have heard something from the front row on that one. All right, so verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches and kindness toward us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we will never cease to be amazed by God's grace. It just will, it will, it will wash over us wave after wave until all eternity, and it will never cease. That's amazing. It's amazing. And, and so, so look, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing, it is a gift of God. So there's the reminder. There's the, there's the reminder of who we are. That we don't boast in it, that we did nothing to attain it. It was all of God's grace. Not only of him condescending to make himself known, but condescending even further in the second person of the Trinity and his son, Jesus Christ, to become the form of a servant and a servant to the point of death and even death on a cross that he might take the curse of God on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God. And, and so, so we see this grace of, 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 of God reaching out to us and saving us. And then verse 10 for we are his, work, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's that creational language of Genesis. What we created in Christ Jesus, made new for good works. So, so just hold on a second. If you uh, don't believe that salvation changes your future life, then you don't understand the Bible. What I mean is you don't claim Christ and keep living like you're lost. That we've been created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now skip to chapter four, right? So there's the reminder. Chapter four, verse one, I therefore a prisoner 
for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, there's that language, walk. You see, that we would walk in those good works. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. Which, by the way, I love that. Paul means he's literally a prisoner for the Lord right now. And he doesn't say, hey, you know what? This Christianity thing's not really working out. It's not worth it. Landed me in jail. You guys might want to do something else. What kind of credibility does he have right now? I'm in jail because of this. By the way, press on is totally worth it. It's amazing. And so if we were to go forward, and we don't have time for it, if we were to go forward, we'll see that how God has equipped the church, right, for the ministry of the word so that the word could continue to be proclaimed and that we would, sorry, I was really struggling because I was looking at chapter three and not chapter four. And so I was given a bunch of filler words because I was panicking because I thought... (laughs) I've to- I totally forgot what the Bible says, but, but, but I was in the wrong chapter. Um, and so, so look, he says that he's, we've been given, he's gifted the church for the preaching of the word. And why? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Right? That we'd be built up to maturity, and that we had come to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then I love verse 14, so that we may no longer be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful schemes. This is great. You want to know what it's like to be an immature Christian? It's to be tossed around by every new blog post that you read. It's like, oh, I'm unstable. I don't really know what to do because I just read this. And oh, now I'm thrown over here because I don't know what to do because of this. This is how it works in our culture today. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need the ministry of the church and we need the preaching of the word and we need the ministry of the word to continue in the church that we would speak the truth in love to one another so that we all will attain maturity and that we will all come to the fullness and the stature of Christ. This is God's plan. We'd be reminded of who we were. That's not who you are anymore. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. This is why we need to continue to hear God's word because we all forget and we all have gospel amnesia and that we will continue in God's word so that we will be stable. Now get this, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated because, and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now get this, because this is what you are to do. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Remember, that's not who you are anymore. Put it off and be renewed in the spirit of your minds by the word, what we just read, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, just like we saw with Jacob, God called him. He said, come back to me. Jacob says, we need to, we need to put, put away the idols 
We need, to, we need to put off the old garments and put on some new garments. Paul seems to pick up on this exact language right here and say, hey, put off the old self. That's not who you are anymore. You are new in Christ Jesus and put on the new self. You can read the parallel passage. In fact, we'll read it in our member meeting in a few moments in Colossians 3. where Paul says the same thing. It's this parallel that we see that, that God is, reminds us just as he did Jacob. He speaks to us. He comes to us graciously in his word. He reminds us of who we are in him and who we were and that we are that no longer. And this fleshes out in our lives. We respond to that in worship and we respond to that in action. Of saying, you know what? That I'm, I want to live in light of my new identity. I don't want to live according to who I was, but who I now am. And I don't know if that's good grammar or not, but who I am in Christ Jesus. The flip back to Genesis 35. And as we do, can I just ask, maybe you're listening can I just ask you, what is your trust in? Maybe you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian. But you're trusting in something. You may be trusting your intellect, trusting in your health, trusting in your job, and on and on we can go. Everybody trusts in something. Everyone is putting the weight of their life on something that will, that will produce them happiness and that will bring them what it is they think is the good life. Everyone serves either God or an idol, is what I'm saying. So I'm asking you, what is it that you're serving? And I would encourage you to look to the God who has first served you. To look to the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life you could not live. To go to the cross to take the punishment that you deserved. Get this, was buried for you. Yet death and the grave could not hold him because he was victorious over sin that enslaves us, the death that awaits all of us, and was victoriously resurrected on the third day. I would encourage you to put your trust in a God who cannot be buried and who will never fail you. The rest of this passage, I think, in 35, helps us immensely as Christians. I think I can make the point briefly, and I know you're glad for that. The last time I had the privilege to preach from Genesis, we were in chapter 30. If you'll remember there that God prospered Jacob greatly. Remember that? And as he prospered him greatly, what we said, the whole sermon title, I think, was prospering through adversity. And I encouraged us as believers to not flatten out the scriptures, and think, oh, well, this just means that if I'm God's people, right, that, that I'll always have a good life and everything will go great for me. Because that wasn't true in that passage because Jacob experienced lots of adversity as he was prospering. But we have this movement that I wouldn't even call it evangelicalism, but unfortunately it infects us here of prosperity gospel where we just like to read things through that lens. That if I'm God's if I'm one of God's people, then only good things will come to me. And if they don't, it's just because I didn't have enough faith. 
Friends, I, I can't think of anything that's any more contrary to the Bible. Here we have God graciously reaching out to Jacob, calling him back to himself, telling him he's not done with him, and that his promises remain with him. Yet what we have in the last half of this passage is just heartbreak. First, Deborah dies. This is Jacob's mother, Rebecca's nurse, who she had sent to him to help. And we're told that in a minute when we get to Isaac that Rebecca's not mentioned, so we're assuming that Rebecca's already dead. And so what we're seeing is, is, is death among God's people. So first Deborah, and then verse 18. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance off from Ephrathah, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was the hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. If you remember back in, I believe it's 31, or 30, when Joseph was born, she said, may God give me another son. And so the Lord has been gracious and answered that, but she dies. As we read verse 18, as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Anoi, which means son of my sorrow, but his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Verse 19, so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, and it was the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And so we see that this is the wife who we love. And she has died there on the way. What's interesting is that although Rachel did not live most of her life in the promised land, she will be buried there. And she, like those who've gone before her with the patriarchs, will be buried in promise. Which, brothers and sisters, I don't have time to make the point again, but it is a foreshadowing that you and I, too, will be buried in promise. The promise of the future resurrection that is to come if we're in Christ Jesus. And so we see that she's buried. So there's Benjamin, who she named son of my sorrow, that Jacob chooses to change his name, which the mother would typically name the child, it's the son of my right hand, so that it's not completely marked by sorrow, his, his namesake, or his name. And it says, next, heartache that comes is what? Well, hold on, sorry, I skipped something. Look at verse 21. Israel journeyed on. It's the first time that Jacob's actually referred to in the narrative as Israel, besides God telling him that he's going to be called Israel. And I think, it's, I think it's something we shouldn't just quickly pass over. I believe what we're seeing is that God is, I mean, that Jake, God is affirming that Jacob is acting in line with his identity, with who he is as, as God's patriarch who's in covenant with him. In verse 22, he says, While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, this will be revisited in, in chapter 41. That's, that's all we're told. We're just giving this aside. And so what do we see? We see death. And now we're seeing Reuben, who's the oldest of the sons. 
what he's doing, this is not just sexual immorality. What he's doing, it is that, but it's more than that, is he seems to be trying to usurp his father's authority. That, that by taking his father's concubine, by, by taking those who belong to his father, he's seeking to take his father's place. He's seeking to usurp his leadership and take that role. And we'll see that when Jacob gives the blessings in Genesis 41, it, it will be scathing to Reuben because of this incident. So it'll be revisited there. And it says, and then we get the names of the sons. And they're not given in order, but they're given by those who they were born to. So we have those of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. And there were the sons of Jacob that were born in Padanaram, and yes, Benjamin was not born in Padaram. He's born in the promised land, but this is a summary statement that was given of the sons of Jacob. Verse 7. And then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. That is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died. And it was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is just another picture. We saw the similar thing when Abraham died. And there Ishmael and Isaac came and buried him. Here we have Esau and Jacob. And so we have yet more heartache. There's the death of Deborah. There's the death of Rachel. There is the immorality and uh, the division in the family there with Reuben. And then there is the death of his father. So we're seeing the closing of one chapter. And really this will will begin after Esau's descendants will pick up mainly with Jacob's uh, sons coming to the fore throughout the duration of this book in Genesis. And so we're seeing kind of the closing of one chapter. But what I want you to notice is there's heartbreak and heartache here. And so it is with the life of the believer. And we will experience that until the fullness of God's promises come. We have tasted those and had the foretasting of them. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. You and I are new. We are sons of God, Romans 8, but we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies and the fullness of things to come. Romans eight seventeen. we just sang it a minute ago. We will be resurrected with him and we will enjoy that glory, but we will suffer first. We will suffer first. So brothers and sisters, do not believe the lie that is so prevalent even in Christian circles that once we come into relationship with God through Christ, everything will just be perfect and fine. And if it's not, it's because we don't have enough faith. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear. God uses suffering to once again take a little bit more of our heart from the things of this world and set them where they truly should be with him in heaven and saying there is our hope, there is our comfort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it this morning in our lives. Father, I pray even for those maybe through sin in their lives and failure they're wondering are you done with me? They're wondering am I beyond the reach of God's mercy. And the answer to that with confidence is absolutely not.
that even them hearing your word this morning is grace to them just as Jacob heard your word in Genesis 35. As you called to him, so you call to them. You call us to yourself even in our failings. Father, in your kindness, would you lead us to repentance, true repentance. Father, would you remind us of who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ. And would you give us grace to put off the old and put on the new. That even this week, we would resist the seductive lies of the world. And we would stand firm in Christ and that your word would be a light into our path and a lamp to our feet. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.